Welcome to The Fuqua Show, where we hear about the stories, experiences, and insights of Team Fuqua. I'm your host, Thomas Cheng, and today I'm here with Ayana Ferguson. How are you doing, Ayana? I'm doing well. I hope you are super excited to join. (laughs) We're so glad to have you here today. So Ayana Ferguson is a first-year MBA student here at Fuqua. She's a data scientist by trade and co-founded the Data Ethics Practice at SAS Institute, which is a leading analytics company. There, she focused on monitoring and mitigating algorithmic impact on vulnerable populations. She's passionate about creating equitable access and support for underrepresented groups across the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Anything else you want to add to your intro? That was a mouthful. I really just say I'm an advocate, which can get me in a lot of trouble sometimes, but that's essentially, that's me. (laughs) Advocate Ayana. I love it. So today we're going to be talking about data diversity and doing the right thing. We'll start with talking about your experience in data science and data ethics and about this really interesting intersection between those two areas and diversity, equity, inclusion, some of these things that you're really passionate about. But to get started, let's go back to data science and just give a a brief overview for listeners of what is a data science career. I love this question and I'm going to back it up and like define data science because I think that's where most of the confusion comes into play. So I like to think about data science as kind of the intersection between computer science. So you're thinking about all the coding that you're doing, math and stats, where you know what the test is that you need to do, but also you understand the results. And then the last piece that always gets ignored is the domain knowledge. So great, you have a problem, you know how to code a solution. Great, you understand the math and statistics behind it and what it means. But if you can't make that relevant to either an industry, a group of people that are going to be impacted or whatever else grouping you're considering, then it really doesn't matter. So data science careers look completely different across different industries, across different fields of study. Can you give an example of maybe a project you worked on just to make it really salient for listeners? Yeah. So when I first started at SAS, I was doing new product forecasting in the CPG space. And so (laughs) I was uh, figuring out new product uh, forecast for chocolates. And there are different methodologies you can use, um, one of those being survival analysis, which is traditionally used in the health field. And so survival analysis really isn't the most proportionate terminology or implementation for trying to forecast chocolate. And so you want to have someone who has the domain expertise inside of CPG, not in healthcare, because what you forecast will look completely different. And this is forecasting chocolate sales for this CPG company? Yes. Yes. Okay. And so you, you said that there's lots of different roles within data science. What kind of work were you doing on, let's say, this chocolate question? Yeah, beginning to end. So I think another really big piece of data science work is exploring the data, right? So it's making sure that the data you have is, you know, number one, you have enough historical data to give you what you're looking for from a predictive standpoint, but also that it's representative of what you are observing, what you're predicting. And so you, you do a lot of gut checks to show that all the attributes you have are going to be viable as you're doing testing. And the next phase of that is starting to build out models. Are you using the most appropriate models? Then monitoring those models, are they accurate? There are things along the way that need to be implemented. That's why I say there's so many pieces of data science. Um, You can be anywhere from the data preparation to the monitoring of the algorithms that you're building, Um, which is why I always stick to the definition, because data science career can look like anything inside of the analytics lifecycle. What drew you to data science initially? 
this is this is a good one. Um, so I have always loved math. And uh, my mom is a retired math professor. And so very early on, there were probably some child labor laws she was breaking as I was grading <laughs> some of her quizzes and tests in school. But, you know, once we get to around the sixth, seventh grade range, they start identifying you as a gifted student and you participate in some of these programs. And I didn't get accepted into the math gifted student program. And my mother was furious. Um, and so she came to the school, she required that I be reevaluated and unbeknownst to me, the solution was that I would do an experiment as a student in the classroom. They'd give me like a two or three week period of time to see how I performed. Um, and so the day that I was being observed, she was actually there. She required that be part of that as well. Um, and I was teaching the class that day. And so she did her infamous like death stare at one of the administrations and I <laughs> stayed in the classroom. So loved math all throughout school, got to a point in college where I was majoring purely in mathematics. And all I was seeing a lot of my fellow students um, matriculate into was teaching. And I didn't want to teach. I loved tutoring, but I didn't want to be a math professor. But I had so much guilt that my mother has spent so much time in creating the space for me to perform well in math. I took a statistics class and one of the projects we did was to um, verify that women on average pay more for car services than men. And my mind was blown. I'm a very inquisitive person. I'm always seeing that there are a difference between treatments between different people, particularly at that age was my brother where I felt like he was getting more money from my parents than I was. I'm like, oh, there's this thing I can use called a T-test to show them that there is a disparity between how much they are providing for him versus me. And so I just love that there was a, a means to answer some of the questions I had improved some of the differences I was seeing. But I wasn't going to walk around doing t-tests by hand all of the time. And so that's why I got into analytics, because you basically can scale up looking at differences uh, using analytics software. And so really, this really all comes from me wanting to be able to prove to my parents that there was a difference in how much money they were giving me versus my brother. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great origin story. And from what you're sharing, this curiosity about disparities, different treatment, Sounds like it may have sparked your interest in data ethics. Mm, yes, it, it did. Data ethics really didn't come on the scene when I first was getting into statistics and data science. But one of the interesting things while I was at SAS, SAS has an organization called Data for Good. Data for Good is a volunteer organization, and I served as an analytics lead. Think about projects where you are using technology for good. So one of my favorite projects, um, we worked with Malala Fund. Are you familiar with Malala Fund? With Malala, maybe not so much the fund. Okay, so essentially Malala, the organization, is a nonprofit focused on girls' education. The project we were working on, we were talking to the stakeholders, and they wanted to know if there was some type of relation between climate change and girls' education. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first heard that, I didn't see the connection. However, after doing a lot of research using um, what's known as the ND Gain Index, which just lightly um, is an index that describes a country's vulnerability to climate change, 
in combination with um, the fragility of their government to be able to respond to a climate event. So we looked at indices like that, and then we looked at other indices that were indicative of girls' educations level. And what we found was that in a lot of coastal communities that have a more fragile government system, it was impacting girls' education because it was the girls that were being pulled out of their school systems to help rebuild the homes, to take care of younger siblings. Um, but this was a volunteer project. I got super wrapped up in the project and my functional team was like, hello, Ayana, where are you? <laughs> and I continued to do a lot of these volunteer projects and I just knew I, I wanted to do data science work that mattered. So I didn't know that this was like an ethical thing. I just wanted things to matter. Um, and so in monitoring some of that work, we were making sure that the allocation distribution from that project wasn't, you know, disproportionately going to one region or to one country. And that's how I got interested or trying to find the vocabulary of what data ethics was, which is about mitigating and monitoring some of the risks to vulnerable populations. So it really just stemmed from me doing a lot of volunteer work and not wanting to lose my job. So needing to find a way to do that. And you mentioned that you were part of the core team that founded the data ethics practice at SAS. Is yes, that right? Yes, yes. Walk me through that process from this interest to trying to build out this team within the larger organization. Yeah, that was such a fun time of my life. Um, I think this was also right in the middle of the paradigm shift from CSR, so the corporate social responsibility, into more of the ESG space. So like I just mentioned, I was an analytics lead for our volunteer Data for Good organization. And that was more from a corporate social responsibility of what are we voluntarily doing to do good in our community. And then we switch over to the CSG space where it's like, no, this is not a volunteer effort. What does the company do? How does it impact community? What are you doing good consistently, not just from a volunteer perspective? And so because I was intertwined in a lot of the uh, analytics projects that we were doing that were monitoring some of the impacts of some of our algorithms and solutions, I was also part of building our diversity report. I was also part of other initiatives around our HR analytics and how we were creating pipelines for more diverse communities to come into SAS. It really happened organically. It again, stemmed from my functional team saying, what is it that you want to do, girl? Because you're all over the place. And luckily, I had some community members that were already interested in this space. And a couple of them actually are in the responsible AI um, division now at Microsoft. We took it to our CTO, Brian Harris, awesome individual, and he was on board. You know, we showed him that this was not just something that we were seeing, but that other companies, again, like Microsoft, like Google, um, there were reports coming out from McKinsey, from research at Berkeley about responsible innovation and how it was impacting technology companies. And because we were a leading analytics company providing software and solutions, we absolutely had to pursue what it meant to be a responsible innovation company. And that's how the data ethics practice formed. I love that. I love identifying a need, getting buy-in from the stakeholders, and trying to build something out to solve this problem. What did that next step look like for you, though, after you got that buy-in? And how did you start to build out this infrastructure? You know, the interesting thing about 
entrepreneurship inside an organization is that it doesn't look much different than entrepreneurship outside of an organization. It took a lot of time. And while I was lead data scientist, there were so many other things that I was doing. There was a lot of research to be done on what data ethics versus responsible innovation meant, what a competitive landscape looked like. I did a lot of situational analysis work, looking through Forrester and Gartner reports to see who was competing in that space. And then starting to formalize our principles and the frameworks that we would utilize that would allow some of that intersectional communication between divisions that were creating technology versus deploying technology. And I think that's an area where a lot of people will be interested. There's a lot of conversations right now about technology and whether or not technology itself can be to put it simply, good or bad, or whether it's about the applications of technology. Some people even wonder, data. Data is just numbers in a spreadsheet. How can that be ethical or unethical? Man. Would love to just open it up to yes, hear your this thoughts. Yes, is, this is like so near and dear to my soul. <laughs> I think and what you'll see if you look at responsible innovation at large, most of the key players have principles, the main principle being human centricity. And what this means is that we have a tendency to do exactly what you just said. We look at data, we look at technology and say, this smart system is doing as it pleases with data. That does not include me as a human. And so how can it be right or wrong? But let's really think about that, right? So if we're utilizing data for a solution from the 1960s in the United States. Well, what was going on in the 1960s, the United States, a lot of interesting things. This is the civil rights era. A lot of the data collection during that time did not include people of color. And so as technologies were being created during that time, it didn't include the insight or the experience of people of color. And so if we continue to use historical data that has excluded a lot of user groups, then it's not just the data doing something. It's not just the technology doing something. It is what we are feeding and we're feeding in our own historical biases. Therefore, we're getting to a Jim Crow 2.0 with a technology spin. So data is not just data. It's what we as humans feed it from our historical context. Right. And there's a lot of conversation right now about AI bias and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. different effects on different groups. Did you work on those issues or was data ethics a little bit different? <laughs> no, that, that's definitely the space. And so what's interesting here is... Um, and I, I'll call this loosely a success. We're starting to see more regulation talk specifically about data and AI bias. And so I don't know if you've seen the EU's regulations around technology and AI, but it's important to note that it was introduced by their executive, their, you know, in executive entities, whereas our, I think we right now in the United States, we are introducing the Algorithmic Accountability Act. Mm. It was introduced earlier this year, but it hasn't been accepted yet. But both of these bodies of work are around identifying the risk levels of things that we create and being transparent about how they're being used. Um, and so moving forward, I don't know that this will be something that will happen today or tomorrow, but... I find it hopeful that at least we're starting to create some of the regulation uh, to be explored. And just to make it clear for people listening, what are some other examples or use cases or ways that this could be applied? I have a really good one. Okay, Please. so everyone loves a good Netflix series or a good Netflix documentary. So there is a researcher from MIT and her name is Joy 
Blumweeny. She created a documentary called Coded Bias. Coded Bias. Yes, Coded Bias. It was released in early 2020, so before the madness, but largely came about during um, the pandemic. What she was researching was the uh, bias inside of facial recognition technology. So I don't know if, you know, some we're a much younger group, but some of us may have had experience when the water sensors first came into the restrooms. A lot of people with darker shades of skin had problems with washing their hands because the sensors weren't recognizing that their hands were in front. This is because during a lot of the testing that took place to create this technology, again, all user groups weren't including in that technology. And so you have an unintentional exclusionary system, which one to add here, I, I wholeheartedly believe that most of what we see inside of bias in technology is not malicious. It's just that we haven't been exposed and we don't have a true, a good representation of people creating solutions and being part of t- testing and training data sets. With that example, I'm going to go ahead and guess that, oh, have a bit more of a diverse group of people putting their hands in the system might do a little bit, but might not solve some of the larger issues. Yeah, it, it definitely helps. But it's not just about being inclusive in the training data. It's about being inclusive in who's doing the building as well. And we've talked about that in a lot of our classes, right? So you don't want to get into a situation in building any technology where you have group think, right? You, you prefer cognitive diversity. And we've seen this in a lot of the Harvard Business Review articles and other research that shows how much more profitable and successful companies are with diverse teams. Same thing here. You can't expect someone to build something for a group of people of which they have no similar experiences. And so being able to include other identities, perspectives, this is not just from the differences we can see, but also the differences that we can't see. I think we we tend to think of data science and technology as careers that only people with really technical backgrounds can have. That is so dangerous because to your point, if all I see when I look at a data set is numbers, I don't see any historical context or I don't see how this intertwines with the industry that I'm creating a solution for, then it's really easy to unintentionally do harm with the solutions that we create. On that note, I'm so curious, you've talked a bit today about mitigating harm or preventing harm. Yeah. Are there ways in the other direction to try to work towards equity yeah. through data, through technology? Yeah. So I think there's a couple companies now that are starting to create tools and things like model cars to try and mitigate some of this. And so we look at different parity metrics when we have solutions, especially for resource allocation. There are metrics now that say, all right, here is the solution that we've come up with. But does this solution look different between different classes of people? Do we see that we're allocating more resources to men than we are to women? Do we see higher impact for different user groups than others? And so it's, again, difficult during the actual creation but we're really focusing the mitigation on the monitoring process because once you see that there is a disparity between different user groups, then you can start backing your way into, okay, well, maybe this needs to be built a little bit differently, or maybe there's some tweaks that we need to make. And do you have any examples aside from you and your family and yes. the, the example earlier with the, the yes. car I have prices? A really, 
This is another one of my favorite projects, um, also from the Data for Good, now Social Innovation at SAS. So there's an organization in New York called the Center for New York City Neighborhoods. Another nonprofit really focused on closing the wealth gap and providing equitable housing opportunities to people of color. So we worked with them to start looking and analyzing the data on the differences in the five boroughs. Okay, who was being denied for loans? Who's paying more in fees? What does healthy housing look like? What does that mean? Who has more access to healthy housing? And the results were wild. I mean, it's, it's what you expect, but you know, in communities of color, there was a vastly different experience and accessibility to healthy housing, which is not just an issue of health, but is an issue of their wealth as well. A lot of us, a lot of families maintain and create wealth through housing opportunities. And so if you think about that, you don't have access to a healthy house, not only is that impacting maybe the health of you and your children and future generations, but it's also impacting the wealth because you won't be able to sell that estate or as much of some of your, your counterpart. What Center for New York City Neighborhoods did because of what we found, they created something called Underwriting for All. And I love this because they created an underwriting system of their own, which is um, a technology that they have found that helps users of color to have more access to, to capital as they're thinking about creating loans and structures uh, of similar for buying a home, for looking at investment properties instead of going through traditional banks. With that example, is that more of a public sector solution? What yes. do you see as the role between public sector and the private sector where you've been historically? Yeah, so I've historically been in private sector. What's interesting is that I was volunteering in public sector. And this also gets to like the intersection of DEI and data ethics. I think what is interesting is that a lot of the private sector work is focused on data ethics. So it is, let me mitigate things so that I don't get sued, <laughs> mm -hmm. whereas public sector is, do we have the appropriate representation? Do we have frameworks that will allow anyone that comes into our organization to, to be successful? So it's difficult sometimes to find the intersection where you can have successful DEI practices and data ethics practices. But the way that I think about it is that DEI is the frameworks that create what we can see in diversity, whereas the data ethics is kind of the proof of why we need the diversity frameworks and we can continue to monitor how the frameworks are impacting our day-to-day -day solutions and organizations. And I find this so interesting because DEI is a big umbrella. A lot of times it's talked about in terms of comments people make, microaggressions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. making sure that you're being an ally and advocate, but less about systems and some of the things mm -hmm. that you've been talking mm -hmm. about today. And it is. And that's why I really appreciate that you made that distinction. A lot of times DEI and things that we don't understand get warped together. And this is no difference. And so when you're thinking about DEI and you're thinking about how to be an ally, you're thinking about how do I create a system of support? That's not the same as data ethics. That is truly just a representation of is this data representative of the solution that I'm creating? 
does anything need to change? Do I need to alter anything about this data? Has the data been altered? It's much more data and technology centric than the DEI space is. But there are some pieces of the DEI framework that are also included in data ethics because again, when you're thinking about who is building solutions, that's when DEI is, do we have, do we, when we're looking at the table of who's building things, who's missing? And when it comes to data, when it comes to DEI, to zoom out a little bit, what is the vision of the world that you're trying to create? What are you working towards? That is such a hard question. <laughs> I know you have ideas. I know you have I, dreams. I do. I have ideas, dreams, and I think about impact all the time. I am an impact assessment girl through and through. Um, so what's funny, when you ask me that question, the first impact I think about is my family. You know, being at Fuqua, being in a business school, we always think about being ambitious. What can we do next? But I also think about how that impacts my family. And I don't want to do something where my family can't be included. Luckily for me, I have a husband who, I mean, is wicked smart. He's got an engineering degree. He's got an analytics degree. He does product management in the responsible innovation space. And so I want to build something with him. Really, Thomas, I'll tell you the truth. I am here until he figures out what he wants to do. I'm just going to be the, I'm just the MBA on the team. Um, but... I want to build a system that allows vulnerable populations and the underrepresented to be able to equity play, equitably, excuse me, play in the entrepreneurship ecosystem. So currently that looks like a VC fund to me. That's in game, right? I'm not going to do that as soon as I graduate. But when I think about impact, it's again, that advocacy of bringing everyone to the table for me. And tell me more about what that looks like. Is it getting more underrepresented groups to found startups and receive capital? Yeah, it's it's all of that, right? And so I think when we um, we actually hosted an event, the our entrepreneurship center hosted an event here recently about the state of black VC. And it doesn't look good. We don't have a lot of representation in the VC space. What's interesting to note about that is that there have been so many studies about Black women specifically being the fastest demographic, um, the fastest growing demographic of entrepreneurs. However, and conversely, 61% of Black women fully fund their own enterprises. Wow. Yeah, we're going to take a pause on that. That is That's almost the reciprocal of what was in the beginning of my statement. A lot, again, of the DEI space is giving access, but I don't want a VC fund to just be access to capital. I want it to also be access to support other organizations that will allow underrepresented entrepreneurs to be able to thrive. Because it's not just about access to funds. You know, it's, it's about how do I scale an organization? How do I find a co-founder? It's all of those things. And so long term for me, it's, it's access and support for underrepresented entrepreneurs. And how do you see your background in data science and data ethics playing into that, if at all? It's, it, it's got to because it's been expensive, right? Like, <laughs> um, but I, I think a lot of my background is the research that goes into it and also monitoring the impact. A big thing for me is I want to make a dent on the generational wealth gap. There's an article that talks about the generational wealth gap between black and white not having changed since the 1950s mm. and largely changing only minimally from the 1950s and before because of slavery. And so when you think about how to make a dent on the wealth gap, there's two things. There's home ownership and then there's what? Creating your own enterprises. While I 
think through the home ownership, which is why I was so invested in the Center for New York City Projects. I want to be able to create other avenues for other people that look like me or or are not represented in the entrepreneur space to be able to create their own wealth. And for people who want to learn more about the space or be involved, whether it's at Fuqua, Duke, or in the Triangle, what do you recommend? So many things. So at Fuqua specifically, and this is why I actually came to Fuqua, the entrepreneurship community here is amazing. So you and I both are part of the Duke Capital which actually was just newly named from Duke Angel Network. And so that's definitely a space where I've been able to learn a lot about the VC. And I think what's so interesting here, what I will say about how to learn things is talking to people. Um, I, I think back to the first interaction between you and I, actually, I overheard you telling someone to just take your keys and go. And I thought that that was so strange. And I think we were coming back from an innovation event. And so when you introduce yourself, I asked you, why did you just give him your keys? <laughs> Don't get any ideas, listeners. <laughs> and, so, and your answer was just, again, because like I know you to be such a brilliant mind and your answer of, oh, he needed it. I feel bad. I'm going to be here. He can just go. You know, just having that conversation was amazing to me because not only do we have people who have such intelligence here at Fuqua, but they care about their community. And so if you want to learn something here, you don't even have to just join organizations. It's the people that we're in class with that that also will take the time to teach you things or even give you their car. <laughs> Again, don't get any ideas, anyone. I guess the last question I'll ask for you today is those are the people who are already interested to learn more. For those who might not be yet, what do you want to say to those folks of, of really why does this matter regardless of who you are or what your background is? It matters because, again, as we think about metrics of success, we look at research time and time again shows that diverse teams are more successful. It also matters because you don't want to be sued in the future for creating a solution that is negatively impacting one specific demographic. And I think it really matters to students at Fuqua and prospective students at Fuqua because we truly are uh, the class of people that not only want to be successful, but care about how that's impacting others. And so as I join organizations and hear about um, the initiatives that people are pursuing and they're very human centric, it matters that you understand how technology impacts your user groups. Well, thank you, Ayana. Data, diversity, and doing the right thing, something that I know you're working on and I hope that others will as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>